So, a few years ago, a travel insurance company decided to run a contest that they did not tell anyone about. Here was their plan. Their plan was for an entire year in the fine print of new insurance policies that they sold, they were going to have a section that read, this is a contest that rewards the individual who reads their policy information from start to finish. If you are the first to contact us, you may be awarded the pays to read contest grand prize of $10,000. Their thought was nobody ever really reads that stuff anymore. You know, digital software user agreements and uh, fine print on contracts. And of course this uh, travel insurance policy, their thought was we're gonna put this in the fine print of every contract we issue for the next year and we'll award it to the first person who finds it. Well, along came a high school teacher, Donalyn Andrews. And Donalyn reads everything, the fine print on everything from cover to cover. Donalyn majored in consumer electronics in college, and she prides herself in being very consumer aware. And so 23 hours into this one year long contest, 23 hours in, it was over. Donalyn got the money. The company was surprised. Uh, they estimate only about 1% of their customers actually read the fine print. Uh, of course, they made good on it, and Donalyn decided to use the money for her 35th wedding anniversary to go to Scotland, a good use of $10,000. I always love hearing stories like that, uh, moments where somebody wins something and everything works out, where every time it goes smoothly. But I'll tell you, for every one of those stories, it seems like there's five where it didn't work out. Um, this week, I, I read about a woman who thought that she had won a radio contest. Actually, she did win it. She did win it. Uh, a radio station in Georgia promised its listeners they would win a hundred grand if they were the tenth caller. And they teased this thing for hours. Coming up on the radio, make sure you're listening our contest. Make sure you're tuned in. You're ready to call because if you're the tenth caller, you win a hundred grand. And so this woman waited and waited and called and she was the 10th caller and she won. And that night she promised her kids they would have a minivan and a shopping spree and a big savings account. They'd get a new home with a big backyard. And then the next morning she showed up at the radio station to collect her prize and they gave her this, a hundred grand bar. And she was ticked. And because she was so mad, they offered her $5,000. And $5,000, in case you're not good with the math, that is not $100,000. And she sued. And uh, they settled out of court. But it seems to me like these stories of broken promises, uh, deceitful promises even, are more prolific than the ones where it works out, right? Um, like the, the waitress at the bar whose manager promised the waitstaff that whoever sold the most beer by the end of the month would get a Toyota. She worked extra shifts, extra hours, days off from her family, needed a car so badly, she won the contest only to be blindfolded, walked outside to the parking lot, her manager removed the blindfold, and what do you know, in a parking space is a Toyota. True story. I know you're disgusted, right? <laughs> Not cool. She sued 14 years later, the restaurant settled out of court and she got that car. 14 years later, she got a real Toyota. Um, there's another radio station promise. This one is in Canada. Um, in Canada, this radio station promised the winner of their contest a trip to Miami 
Turns out it was Miami, Manitoba, cold, snowy Manitoba. Not Florida, not cool. Um, another contest offered winners a fancy Italian dinner only to send them a box of Kraft Spaghetti Classics pasta and a can of tomato paste. There was even an elementary school principal that promised kids that if they had high enough attendance throughout the year, at the end of the year, she would kiss a pig. Um, only to have that principal at the end of the year kiss this right here, a cute stuffed animal pig. Now you call that a bait and switch, you could call that a scam, whatever you wanna call it. What it really is, is a broken promise. And I tell you that because as we jump into the next part of Genesis, we're gonna look at this series, it is all about promises. A promise God makes to a man named Abraham that really sets off the rest of the book of Genesis. Actually, the rest of the Old Testament. The story of God and his people really starts to take shape from here based on a promise. But I think before we look at it, it is worth recognizing that like some of the people we were just talking about, we have all been on the losing end of an unfulfilled promise, right? Whether that's been a promise made to you by a boss or a leader, maybe it's by somebody who sold you something, that they, they promised something that was far better than what you really found to be true, maybe with a car or a house. Um, maybe it's your parents. They made a promise to you that they could not deliver on. Uh, maybe it's been in a marriage or a dating relationship. We all know what it's like to find out the promise we've been given isn't gonna happen. Sometimes for shady reasons, sometimes because the person just can't come through on what they said they would do. And usually, once that's happened enough in your life, and I don't know what enough is, it's probably different for each of us, it, it becomes hard to receive promises the same way. Or I should say even just accept them. Something develops in us that's a little bit cynical, and a little bit skeptical of others, and we think, how can I be even sure? How can I know you're gonna come through? And I bring that up today because I imagine some of you are there, you fill in that blank with God, wondering if he's trustworthy, if God is faithful, because somebody else has not been in your life. And maybe you've struggled with receiving a promise, any promise from God, like the promise that he wants a relationship with you, the promise that he wants to see you live life to the full. The promise of salvation or eternity with him when this life is over. The promise that he has gifted you, like made you unique to do something in this world with purpose. The promise that he'll surround you with uplifting relationships in community. Maybe you are struggling with any of those promises today and it's causing you to have a little bit of a struggle with God or maybe a big one with him. How can I know that God will come through on his promise? And I'm hoping today you learn something about God that changes your mind on whether he is good for what he says he's going to do. That he does not promise 100 grand and give you a candy bar. He doesn't promise a Toyota and give you a toy Yoda. He doesn't promise a trip to Miami and set you in the godforsaken tundra that is Canada. Sorry, Canadians, if you're here today. Um, just to walk through a little bit of where we've been so far in this series. We started off the first week looking at creation, and, and we, we had a lesson in that, that our God is a God who brings order to chaos. And in the next week, we talked about these two figures, Adam and Eve, and their decision to eat fruit from this tree that they weren't supposed to. They disobey God. We said there's a lesson in that. Their disobedience leads to the loss of immortality. It leads to death. 
And it leads to them being exiled from this paradise they're in. But if you remember what we said that week, was that God goes with them as they leave Eden, and God is always in the business of moving us toward paradise, back toward paradise. What you're gonna see in the rest of Genesis, and actually this is what you'd see in the rest of scripture, God's planning and movement toward redeeming his people, especially when we get to Jesus. His ultimate plan to bring people back to paradise. Last week, we looked at the story of the rainbow. The time there was a great flood and God said, from here on out, don't blame me for that stuff. I will not be the one that causes that in the future. Again, God creating a people and a system where he's promising them redemption. And he's creating a way for them to have a loving relationship with him. And today, the story of Genesis continues as we move into the story of Abraham. Now, real quick, I should say this because it's been a couple weeks since I said it. I keep calling this a story, an ancient story told to ancient people with ancient understandings. And every time I use the word story, I wonder if maybe some of you think when I say that, I mean a fictitious story. But when we use the word story, uh, we, we can recognize there are historical stories and then there are metaphorical stories. Like there's a story of the Battle of Gettysburg, which we know really happened. And then there's the story of Peter Pan. And I tell you this because when we say story, it doesn't mean that this is made up. Uh, scholars differ on a number of the things we look at in Genesis. Some would say literally everything you read is exactly how it went down. And other scholars would say some of this is metaphor. And guess what? As Christians, we get to disagree on that. In fact, we can even say, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but what we do know are the right lessons we're supposed to get. And today, the story of Genesis continues as we move into the story of Abraham. And this story is where God begins to build a nation of his people. I want to show you Genesis 12. This is where we're first introduced to this guy, Abram. Um, Abram later has his name changed to Abraham. You can call him either one. It doesn't matter. My apologies if I keep using them interchangeably. I don't even realize I'm doing it. Uh, in Genesis, after the story of Noah, we get genealogies. We get lots of genealogies, two chapters worth of genealogies. And in the midst of them, it tells us about this guy named Abram who was born. And then here's what it says in Genesis 12.1. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I'm going to show you some land. I want you to go there. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, very quickly, let's talk about a question that comes up when we read what we just read. Why is it that God seems to love this group more than all the others? You ever wonder that? And it's not just these verses. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about this group being God's people and everybody else is not God's people. And a criticism of God, or at least of the Bible, is that he would choose these people to be his people and not any other people. And what kind of God likes one group more than all the others? And, and I'm not going to dismiss your questions about that. I like those kind of questions. And my guess is you might feel that even more as you move further in through the Old Testament. But what I'll point out is something that gets lost, and it's right here. Early in Genesis, as God begins to build this nation, he says right away this, all people on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, my plan is to bless everyone, 
I love everyone, but my plan is to do it through you. And we see how that happens eventually through Jesus. So the answer to this question is, God does love everybody. He's got to start the movement toward paradise somewhere, and he starts right here. The passage continues. Verse 4, take a look. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Um, if you're new to the Bible, you might be kind of doing this math. Abram is going to populate a new great nation, but he's 75 years old. How could that possibly work? And actually, this is one of the right lessons in Genesis that we're going to see over and over again. God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Now, this lesson in Genesis is so important. I want to make sure you get it. Will you turn to someone next to you, even if they're a total stranger, and would you just say this lesson? God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes. Would you do that for a second? God uses the most unlikely people to accomplish his purposes, even you. And that is certainly the case with Abram. Not only are Abram and his wife kind of getting up there in years, but, but also Sarah has not been able to give birth. Um, this is not a likely couple for this nation building. Uh, not your best candidates to build a nation of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Can, can I add another piece to this um, that we don't really see so clearly in the Bible, but Jewish legend is that Abram's father was an idol maker. Abram did not even grow up worshiping this God, but he grew up in a family that made and worshiped idols. So surely there's somebody more qualified, someone younger, somebody more educated in the ways of God. Nobody would pick this guy to populate a new nation that reconciles the entire world to God. But this is exactly who God chooses. Why? What does Abram have that God is going to use to begin to move people back toward paradise, to redeem a world? What has he got? Well, Hebrews 11.8 in the New Testament gives us a clue. Take a look at this. Would you read these first three words with me? By faith, Abraham, okay, I'll take it from here, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Why did God choose Abraham? Not because of his pedigree, not because of his youthfulness, not because of he and Sarah's baby-making skills. He chose him because of his faith. And actually, there's another word there, obedience. He obeyed. Now, real quick, something very cool just happened, whether you know it or not. We're reading the story of Abraham and God promising to make his descendants into a great nation that will bless all people, the stories in Genesis 12. But 4,000 years later, after Abraham lived, a New Testament writer writing a letter to the Hebrews comments on this moment in Genesis 12. And I think it's so cool because it tells us that this thing that we are reading in Genesis in this auditorium this morning is foundational to seeing how Jesus and his followers understood God and their world. They learned and talked about these same right lessons from this story and another thing I love about it is even more cool is they help us understand things about Genesis that we would not have gotten reading Genesis alone. Like right now, we're reading Hebrews and we can understand that God chose Abraham because he was a person of faith and obedience. And as we get further in Genesis, it's important to be able to look at other scripture 
and see what it tells us is the right lesson in the chunk that we are reading about. All right, one of those lessons we see here is going to be faith. Abraham is a man of faith and obedience. That is why God chooses him. And of course, we know because he was a man of faith and obedience, all his troubles went away and he lived happily ever after. No, that is not what happened. It was just the opposite. Abram and Sarah would experience famine and they'd have to move again. And they would experience separation from their family that had traveled with them. But certainly the hardest thing of all for Abram and Sarah was when they experienced nothing. God had promised a child. You're gonna build a nation through your descendants. You gotta have some. And 24 years later, after that promise, zip, nothing. Again, maybe you know how that feels. Maybe you are still waiting for an answer to your prayer. I would struggle with 24 days, but 24 years? You would think this has got to be messing with Abram's faith and obedience, right? Well, let's see for ourselves. Romans 4.18, again, New Testament commentary on this Genesis story. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, says he didn't weaken in this faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Not a sensitive passage. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened. He somehow was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Who is this dude? Who, 25 years after being promised they will have a child, has no child to hold in their arms, who actually has their faith strengthened? Can I just share one more cultural piece to this? In their day, the inability to have kids was seen as punishment. I mean, that is a crazy idea that we do not believe today, but they believed that. So imagine that everyone around them is asking, well, what must Abram and Sarah have done wrong? That They must have been something. God would have otherwise given them kids by now. How does that being the talk of the town strengthen your faith that God's gonna come through on his promise? I read this and I think, maybe Abram just has some divine power that I do not have. How is it that Abram can be so sure God will keep his promise? Well, in the middle of asking that question, I noticed something that I'd never really noticed before about Abram's story. Something that explains why he could have this faith that seems so superhuman. And this had been there all along in, in Genesis, but I'll be honest with you, uh, until a few years ago, I missed this. And I think I have found the answer to the question, how did Abram know that God would come through? And how can I know? Uh, come back next week and I will tell you the answer to that. No, I would, I would not do that to you. I'll tell you to you right. Here it is. In Genesis 15, this is 10 years before the promise is fulfilled, but it's 15, it's 15 years after that initial promise is made. So he's been waiting a long time, 15 years. God comes to Abram and he takes him outside and he has him look up in the sky and he tells him, your offspring are gonna be as many as the stars in the sky, but God does not stop there. He says an additional promise in all of this. Verse seven, take a look, I'll show it to you. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession 
of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, and notice these next four words. Would you say these with me? Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? Wait, you see it there? He's a person with a lot of faith, but he's a person like you and me, a person with a lot of questions. How can I know? How will I know? He's like the original Whitney Houston of the Bible. How will I know? How can I know? Just imagine Abraham singing that, all right? Now we're talking. Can you relate to this, Abram? He brings the question to the only one in the world who could ever answer it. How can I know, God? Because it's already been 15 years since you promised, and I could use some help to know that you are going to come through. And here is God's answer. Check this out, verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And so Abram brought all of these animals to him, and God, uh, Abram cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. And the birds, however, he did nothing with. He did not cut in half. Now, that seems like the most bizarre response to that question of how will I know that anyone has ever made. How can I know that you'll make good on your promise? But, but in ancient times, this would have been clearly understood. A blood covenant was about to be made. A binding contract. Here's how you can know. Let's make a blood covenant, Abraham. A contract. Okay, this is important. From history and archaeology, we know many times this type of covenant was used between a victorious king and a lesser king or a conquered king or a servant. And what they would do is they would slaughter the animals, they would cut them in half, and then they would put them in a, in a, in a row, two rows, so they could walk down an aisle between them. And what they were saying when they walked was, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I break this covenant. See the way these animals are cut in half? If I don't keep up my end of the deal, may the same thing happen to me. And each party would walk down an aisle of dead, butchered animal carcasses. Good times. <laughs> Intense, right? By the way, those of you looking for wedding ideas, forget the flower petals. <laughs> Get a cow and a, a ram and a goat and a couple of birds and, you know, do your thing. All right. Here's how this typically went down. Both the king and the other party would walk down this aisle. But I, I want you to look at what happens here. Pay close attention to verse 17, because this is going to happen quick. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. All right, do you see what just happened? God appears as a torch, and he walks down this aisle. God says, if I don't keep this covenant, if I don't build this nation, may this curse fall on me. And here is the part I had not seen before. Do you notice who didn't walk between the pieces? Abram. Abram remains on the sidelines, and God walks through alone. Do you see what that means? That means God is saying, if it fails, if I fail, that is on me, and may this slaughter happen to me. But Abram, if you fail, if the nation of Israel fails, then that is on me too. And may my body be broken and my blood poured out. Can you see where this is headed? 
How does Abram know? How do you know that God will keep his promises when you've been failed, when you've been betrayed by others, when you've lost hope that promises will ever get fulfilled? How do you know? Because God guarantees his promise with the blood of Jesus. These are not just idle words that God said to make somebody happy or get a sale. His promise, his promises are not on the condition that he still has feelings for you or that he's in a good mood. And these promises are not based on your behavior or your ability to get things right, keep up your end of the deal. God makes it clear 10 years before Abram has a child, I will die before I break this promise. And we later find out that dying is actually part of how God keeps it. God would honor the covenant he made with Abraham and through Jesus, he would extend a new covenant to you and me. Okay, we could end right there today. Crosswinds, know that God keeps his promises to you because he kept the most important, toughest promise through Jesus. But we got seven minutes left, so let's go a step <laughs> further because sometimes it gets messier than this. How can I know that God will keep his promise when it seems like God's doing the exact opposite in my life? Like the trajectory I am on would have me think that I'm an outlet. I'm the one person God is not gonna keep his promise to. Easy for you to say God keeps his promises, Chris, but all indicators in my life say that he will not. All right, well, check it out. Even that happened to Abraham as well. After they finally had a child and it seemed like the promise to make a nation was about to finally get going, after the birth of their son Isaac, God comes to Abraham and he tells him to sacrifice his son. Let me show you Genesis 22, verse two, where we see this. It says, then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'm gonna show you. Those of you who've heard this story before, does this moment in Genesis disturb you? Yeah, God asks a man to kill his own son as some sort of sacrifice to God? And let me spoil the story for you. Uh, it does not happen. God provides an animal instead. But that he would even ask this and play this kind of mind game is just abusive and offensive and so not godlike. And if I'm Abraham and I get this request, I think... I thought that I believed that God would keep his promise, but now I don't know. I mean, this God is cruel and spiteful, and he took me all this way, and he got my hopes up about descendants just to take it away. He must like watching me suffer. But I want to challenge you to think differently about this moment in Genesis. To understand it, I think there's something you got to know about the world at that time. Early cultures figured out pretty quickly that their survival was dependent on things like food and water, and that for food to grow, it's going to need sun and water in the right proportions. Too much water, things wash away. Uh, not enough, those things wither and die. Too much sun, plants wilt. Not enough, they die. And as people observed this basic stuff in ancient cultures, they came to the conclusion, there are unseen forces that I cannot control for my survival. And they came to the belief that these forces were either on your side or they were not on your side. So how do you keep the forces on your side? The next time you have a harvest, you take a portion of it and you put it on an altar as your sign of gratitude because you need the forces, the gods, the goddesses, whatever. You need them on your side. Now, 
imagine what happened when people would offer a sacrifice, but then it didn't rain. Or imagine if your animals got diseases or, or, or you were unable to have children. You would think, I didn't offer enough. And so they offered more and more and more. All right, here's a question. If things are going well, how do you know you're offering enough to keep them going well? You never know where you stood with the gods. If they're angry, if they're disappointed, they will bring calamity. Think of the anxiety that would raise up in you wondering whether things went well or not. The answer was always sacrifice more, give more, offer more. Your crops, a goat, a lamb, a cow. And what is the most valuable thing you could offer the gods to show them how serious you are about earning their favor? A child. In these ancient cultures, I mean, you can find burial grounds of children, unfortunately. In these ancient cultures, religion took you to a place where you would offer that which was most valuable to you, your child, not this religion, but the ones surrounding it back then. Never this religion, but the ones that Abraham and God's people had been exposed to, yes. And now, it seems like that's happening to Abraham, because God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to this mountain nearby and sacrifice him there as an offering to me. And so we read, early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. Check it out. He doesn't argue. He doesn't protest. He doesn't procrastinate. He, do he doesn't even ask God for instructions. It's like he knows what to do because he's seen this before with surrounding cultures. This is what you do. So he just goes to it. So Abraham sets out and it takes three days to get to this mountain. All the while thinking three days while you're walking, how can this promise of God come to pass if God's gonna have me kill my son? Three days of looking at the downward trajectory of this promise, but also three days saying to himself, Something here does not seem right. What is God up to? Okay, when they get to the mountain, I want you to see what Abraham says to the servants. Verse five, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Now that is a real interesting phrasing and I wanna make sure you caught it. And I understand that, that uh, what I'm about to share is not maybe the most traditional interpretation of this story, but look again at what he says. Servants, stay here. The boy and I will go worship, and then we will come back to you. We, plural, him and me, we're coming back. Huh? Okay, hold that thought. As they walk up the mountain, Isaac asks his dad, Abraham, Hey, where's the sacrifice going to come from? There's a line in the Bible where he asks this, verse 7. Dad, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering we're going to do? All right, this is either a very morbid detail to the story that a kid asks his dad, I mean, it's meant to make us sick to our stomachs, or something else is going on. And I believe it's something else because Abraham's answer to him in verse 8 is, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. God will provide. Okay, I already told you how it ends. God does provide. There's a ram caught in the thicket, caught by its horn. Abraham goes and gets it. God says, sacrifice this ram instead. But what is going on in the middle? 
It's as if Abraham knows that God is going to stop him. It is as if during that long three-day walk, he remembers the sacrifice. He remembers that blood covenant where God walked down that aisle, and he knows my God keeps his promises. Now, why is a story like that in the Bible? What is the point? What's the point to Abraham? What's the point to the early hearers of the story? And what does it mean for you who feel like the chances of God keeping his promises to you are trending downward? Okay, first thing it means, this God will not make you earn his promise to you. He wants Abraham and all of his descendants to know other gods may demand your firstborn, but not this God. This is the God who, when you think to receive his promise, you're going to have to earn it, he will not let you. He will stop you and say, wait, I got this. Crosswinds, this event happened. Or if you struggle with the historical validity of it, at least the story is in here, to shock the audience at the time. Not, not shock them with a possible child sacrifice. That would not have been shocking to them. That happened all around them. They'd seen people do that before with their other gods. It is a shock to them that there is a God who stops one. The gods don't do that. Gods are all about, show me you love me. And this God says, I'll show you. The second reason that this story is here is to tell you that God is just getting started. The story ends with God saying to Abraham, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. By the way, that's funny to me. You've heard the phrase, I swear to God. Even God says it, I swear by myself. <laughs> I swear to myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations, here it is again, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I will bless all people everywhere because of you, Abraham, another promise. Not just people who love and obey and sacrifice to this God. I'm gonna bless everyone. I'm just getting started. But here's the, here's the third reason this story is here, and I think it's the most important. It is to tell us that God provides. Worship, sacrifice, and receiving promise was always about you providing for the gods. This story is about this God giving to Abraham. And this was mind-blowing. It was groundbreaking. A God who does not demand, but instead gives. A God who blesses. And maybe today, you are somebody who has struggled with what God has promised for you. Or, or, or you believe it, but there are just these moments where it seems so off track, your life seems off track from that promise, and you are marching up the mountain like Abraham, and you're saying to yourself, how can this be? God promised me something, and I'm about to watch it all get blown apart, and maybe what you need to know is that God provides. He does the providing, and just like the ram on the mountain that day that would be sacrificed, he provides most significantly through the sacrifice that was Jesus on the cross. I've asked Derek to come back out here today and, and close us in a song where we can just acknowledge God's promise to us. And I, I'll just say, I know that can be hard when it feels like you have been waiting forever. Sometimes I, I think that we think our faith, faith is certainty that God is gonna come through on his promise. I gotta be sure 
Can I tell you today, that is not faith. Faith is obedience even when you are not certain, even when we doubt. And the reason that we can have that faith, the reason we can follow even when we doubt is because we've seen the commitment that God made to us through Jesus. Jesus on the cross, the time that God said, even if you fail, I will not. I will die to keep my promise. And maybe for you today, as we sing this song, this can just be a moment that you remember his promise to you. It's a moment you thank him for it. Maybe it's a moment you celebrate him for it. Maybe for some of you, it's a moment you say, God, I really need this to be true. You say, how can I know? And God reminds you, he gave himself. And you aren't left hanging with these promises. He is here to let you lean on him as you are waiting for him to come through. I want to ask you to stand with us and Derek's going to lead us as we sing before we go. Dying, 
the souls can find peace in this one thing that you are steadfast you are unchanging and that you love us we thank you for that this morning Lord be glorified in us this next week we're going to walk through wherever we walk Lord be with us Lord. we love you amen hey have a great day and we'll see you back here next weekend alright see you at the connect corner bye